Today is Friday, January the 10th, 2007, and you're listening to the Hinterviews podcast, hosted by National Arts Centre English Theatre Artistic Director Peter Hinton, produced by the National Arts Centre English Theatre, and coming to you from the Panorama Room of Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. I'm Laura Denker. In today's Interview podcast, Peter interviews Brian Quirt, founder and artistic director of Toronto's Night Swimming Theatre, an award-winning dramaturgical theatre company that develops new plays, performance works and dance, but does not produce them itself. Brian is also the director of Rough House, Andy Massingham's extraordinary piece of silent theatre, featured as part of the NAC English Theatre 2006-2007 season in the studio. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I think I'm, oh, there I am, I'm hooked up. Welcome to the National Arts Center this afternoon and um, the ongoing interview series with our guest today, Brian Quirt. And um, I'm gonna start by telling you a few things about Brian and we're gonna have a chat today that we hope complements your appreciation of Rough House uh, by Andy Massingham. And Brian is, uh, he's from Ottawa originally, and uh, he is the artistic director of a company called Night Swimming. And um, I'll ask Brian to talk a bit about that, because Night Swimming is a very unique company in Canada, and he runs it with uh, Naomi Campbell, who's the artistic producer there, and it's a company primarily devoted to the development of new scripts and play creation. They produce shows as well, like with Rough House that they're doing with us. But I would say first and foremost, the thrust of the company is play development. And they work with writers from all across the country. Uh, you might be familiar with some of Brian's work. Um, he did the dramaturgy and direction of a play called Acre of Time by Jason Sherman uh, about... Ottawa here that was done at GCTC. He's done other works of Jason's. He's worked with Don Druick, many, many playwrights. And um, he uh, is very experimental in terms of how to develop scripts. You think like a lot of times developing a script is the playwright sends in the script, somebody reads it, they go yes or no. Uh, There's a lot more to it than that. And sometimes playwrights come to Brian with an idea Sometimes they come with a very finished text. And so uh, I think Brian's quite unique in devising a way to develop a play as unique as each play is different. Um, He is uh, a director as well as a dramaturg, and he uh, has recently won the Elliot Hayes Award for Dramaturgy, which is an award to acknowledge outstanding work in the field. And uh, is, uh, are you the president of... He is the president of um, the Dramaturges and Literary Managers Association of North America. So he's a, a very interesting guy, and uh, please join me in welcoming Brian to the NAC today. So I'm going to begin, Thanks, Brian, <laughs> by giving you the dreaded question. What the hell is dramaturgy? <laughs> what is it? How do you... Um, Define it, or... 
when I talk about dramaturgy, uh, you're right, I get the question a lot, uh, starting with my mother and working its <laughs> way outward from there. Um, uh, I often liken it to uh, uh, um, the relationship between a, a book editor or a magazine editor, because those fields are a little more familiar to most people, um, in the sense that, uh, like a magazine editor, I work with writers not just on uh, this sentence is too long and, and this paragraph should be shorter, although that's part of what an editor does. But part of what a magazine editor does is um, they have a responsibility for uh, the magazine as a whole, which stories uh, are invited to be part of that edition, uh, which topics are addressed, um, what is the uh, idea behind this uh, particular article that I've asked this writer to write or research and write, um, so that you're partly working on the nuts and bolts of a magazine article, or in my case, the nuts and bolts of a play, um, but also you're working on what is the idea underlying the play, what are the themes that's, are, that are being investigated by the play, um, what um, uh, topics uh, and what routes do you want to take, what strategies do you want to investigate, both in terms of the story of the play, but also how you're going to tell that story. Uh, and I find a lot of people, when they think about a book editor or a magazine editor, they go, okay, that makes sense. And for some reason, it becomes mysterious with the theater. Um, and it needn't be. It's not that, it's challenging and hard at times, but it's not that mysterious. So my work is with playwrights and choreographers. Uh, at Night Swimming, uh, Peter's right, we work almost entirely from the very beginning of a show. So with Rough House, for example, um, there is no script per se, but even when we're working with a playwright, it usually begins before the playwright starts writing, that it's about uh, asking and finding a playwright who wants to do something that they feel they couldn't do with any other company in Canada. And if we find a topic, an idea, a theme, a story that a playwright wants to work on, that they feel because maybe the cast size is too large, or the, the, the storytelling style is strange, or um, the, the content is potentially controversial, and they feel that other companies wouldn't be interested in it or would feel uncomfortable with it, that's what we love to hear. And then that's a role we can play with them because we can commission large cast plays because, as, again, as Peter said, we don't produce 99% of the works that we create. We can commission a large cast play, and we've got a, a bunch of large cast plays that, in fact, we could never afford to produce ourselves. Um, but we can work on them, and we can commission those writers, make sure that they have the resources they need, the support they need, the encouragement they need, um, the, the research materials, the travel they might need, um, the working with actors when it's useful, um, uh, rehearsal time, workshop time, whatever they need to continue the work on the play, we can provide and we do to make sure that they're creating something that they uh, dreamed about creating and perhaps felt that they would never have had a chance to do anywhere else. Brian, you've worked as a dramaturge for theater companies that exist, like at Canadian Stage, at Factory Theatre. You have a very active freelance career working with independent companies from GCTC, the Tarragon, to companies like Cahoots. What's the, what's the difference in the work that you do at night swimming versus your experience in those kinds of positions or with producing theaters? Uh, with producing theaters, part of, as Peter said, you know, part of it is what uh, is scripts arrive at theaters constantly in, in all stages of their writing process. Um, and at a, at a producing theater, you're inundated with scripts. And part of the job and the role of a dramaturg is to um, 
uh, take in all of those scripts, uh, absolutely to make sure that they're read, to identify the ones that are most interesting for the particular theater, and then to, to begin work with the playwright wherever the play happens to be at in its journey towards production, uh, to, to f- meet them there and begin work in your context, at your theater, to develop that play towards uh, production, hopefully. Um, at Night Swimming, I decided many, many years ago, because I do that at many theaters and have done that at many theaters, uh, that I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't work with plays that come in through the door. So, in fact, we don't accept scripts at all. Um, all of our uh, new plays are by invitation. So uh, I might have seen your, if you're a playwright, I might have seen your play somewhere, uh, maybe even here at the Arts Centre, and loved your play, and uh, uh, had a conversation with you after the show, and then followed up a few months later and said, um, are there other things you're interested in writing? What are, what are the other stories you want to tell? Um, uh, which was the dream project that you have always been inspired by but haven't got to? Um, Whereas the work in, so, the, so that it's really about the primary relationship between the playwright uh, and myself and, and Naomi at Night Swimming. Whereas at a producing theater, you're dealing with a, a raft of other issues and topics and uh, uh, other programs. As a dramaturg, you're often responsible for elements of um, uh, arts education sometimes, uh, audience outreach sometimes, um, your work is about seeing shows elsewhere in the country to go, oh, I saw that show in Vancouver, and that show should really come to factory, and it would be a good match with our next season. Season planning is a huge part of any dramaturg's work. At Night Swimming, I don't do any of that. <laughs> I've eliminated all of that from my world uh, at Night Swimming so that I can concentrate on this relationship with the dozen or so writers that we work on at any given time. Yeah, there have been a lot of really interesting projects that um, Brian's worked on, and one of them was uh, taking a novel by Jane Urquhart called, you know, uh, The Whirlpool. And Brian was involved in working on an adaptation of the novel to the stage, but working with a choreographer as well in the development. And you mentioned choreography as one of the things. So... I think you can sort of see the model of the book editor and stuff with a play and a text. What do you do when you're working with movement? What do you do with roughhouse where there are no words in it at all? How do you develop that? What are the uh, challenges there? <clears throat> the challenges, and it's partly a challenge, it's partly a relief not to have a script. Um, <laughs> I, w- I work on words so often. A huge part of any editor's or any dramaturg's world is, is words on paper. Uh, we deal with dozens of scripts all the time, and, and this draft and that draft, and, and the subtle changes from uh, this draft to that draft, uh, this scene to that scene. And there's joy in that. I love working with words. You can't be in the theater uh, without loving words. Um, but I find choreography, uh, it, it's a sto- there are stories in movement as well, of course. There are ways of taking people, an audience, on a journey in movement without words. So I've purposely, with Night Swimming, commissioned a number of dance pieces. Mm. And I find it such a relief to not have words to have to deal with sometimes. And uh, what I get out of it, what I work on is, is uh, although I'm not working on what we're saying if we were in the show, and it's not about what we're saying to each other, but um, it is about how we move near each other, how we would touch each other. What does it mean if I touch uh, another dancer here versus here, or if I push or if I pull? That all communicates uh, something just as much as if we were talking to each other, that there are ways of conversing on stage physically. So a lot of my work with a choreographer 
is instead of reading, of course, I'm not reading scripts all the time, I'm in uh, rehearsal halls watching the dancers and the choreographer work together. And what I'm watching is, is the interaction that's developing between the dancers. I'm not looking at what their mouths are saying, I'm looking at what their bodies are saying. And uh, you can watch a dance piece at a certain point and, and, and say, you know, the thing that's happening between those two dancers there, um, I think it would be stronger and, and more effective if they did this, or if this movement happened uh, at this point instead of this point, which is very much like you would with a script. You go, you know, this moment in this scene feels like it happens too early, that they argue about X, Y, or Z sooner than it feels like the scene wants them to. And that's a large part of what we do in the theaters, is we try to find the, the right moment for every moment. It's no different in dance. Uh, sometimes the criteria you use is different, right? We're not looking at the argument or the debate or, or the, the, the signs people are throwing each other with their mouths. But we are looking at how, they, how you might turn your back to someone or how you might look at someone from behind and what is that communicating and whether that's the right moment for that. It's a little more abstract, absolutely. Um, but that's also part of the pleasure. The words can be so tangible that you, you end up with long, complicated, fascinating debates about what someone means in this moment. And in dance, uh, probably because dancers don't care what it means often. That's a ra horrible generalization on some level. But there's also a truth to that, 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 that they are not trained and they're, not, they're less interested than uh, many of us in the theater about what it means when I look at you at that point in the dance that their, their interested dancers are trained to, to have a, an absolute focus on the execution of it. So it's how I look at you is crucial to a dancer. What it means that I look at you in that moment is less important, very important to the choreographer, and for me as a dramaturg, really critical. So having me in a, in a rehearsal for a dance piece, I find dancers are really happy to have you there, partly because they're, they're reminded about that look has meaning, why, yeah. the why, um, and they're, they're urged to think about it a little bit. Um, and it's not so much that they, they want to think about it, but they're happy to go to, to be asked to look at it at a different way because uh -huh. it'll say it more effectively, which is about execution. So if I look at you from here or in some other move, that it's saying something more powerful, and a dancer loves to hear that. Um, so that's, that's part of what I do is, is looking at those individual moments. And then in any dance piece... You know, there's a beginning, there's a middle of the end. You may not feel that when you watch contemporary dance. Uh, lots of people don't like contemporary dance because it feels too abstract, that they don't know what's going on, um, why this happens, and where, where, where it progresses to. Um, and you're right, a lot of contemporary dance can be like that. Uh, the work I find interesting in dance is, in fact, where there isn't a story. So I don't, you don't go, oh, mother, father, child, story, things happen. But there are uh, individuals on stage that they do go somewhere. There's a journey. And part of my work in theater is where does the story go? How does it get there? In dance, same thing. Who are the individuals on stage? What are they doing to each other? Where do they get to? Very similar process, different vocabulary. Yeah, part of the, the challenge or the fun of a piece without words is you don't have the same kind of anchors onto the story that you do with words, you know, where you can go, okay, it's about the father and the mother and the child does this. In Roughhouse, for example, uh, you have to call what this story is from it, because there are lots of stories in it, yeah. and on one level, one sort of very simple one. Can you talk a little bit about Roughhouse, how it began, and... 
Uh, Andy Massingham, the performer you're going to see on stage in 45 minutes or so, is a very, very skilled uh, actor uh, based in Toronto. And he was in this production of Jane Urquhart's The Whirlpool that I adapted and directed some years ago at the Tarragon Theatre. And we cast him because, um, although he's lost a little weight, uh, at the time he was quite heavy set, and, um, but he's wonderfully agile on his feet. He's very light on his feet, as you'll see. Um, and uh, has a very, very youthful, childlike quality on stage. And um, we'd worked with him in other small things. And when we were casting The Whirlpool, there's a five-year-old boy in the story of that novel who um, uh, essentially learns to speak during the, the story. And uh, for a long time, refuses to talk. And then at a certain point, suddenly begins speaking again. And it just seemed obvious to us that this you know, 225-pound actor uh, should play the five-year-old boy. Um, <laughs> And so we cast Andy, and he was fabulous, that, that the sense of it being a five-year-old, even though he was the biggest person on stage by far, um, and the, his lightness on his feet, and, and just his, um, his, the sense of how, uh, how childlike he could be was exactly right for the, the character. And we realized, working with the choreographer, that he's actually a beautiful mover. He's not a dancer. He makes no pretense to be a dancer, but he just moves very gracefully. And... Um, Coming out of that show, he had a great time working on it. Um, we were uh, at a party at my house, actually, in our kitchen, and we were yakking about something or other, and um, I, I knew that he'd done a lot of uh, pratfalls. He's a very talented physical comedian, and slapstick, and all of that sort of stuff, and he taught it at um, Humber College in a comedy course, actually. Uh, and uh, he'd done it bits and pieces, and we were talking, and, and I said at some point, or he said, that uh, you know, he had this reservoir of, of things that he does with his body, comedy, and he'd love to put them all into a show someday. And I said, like what? And he talked a little bit about some of the falls and stuff that he could do. And I said, uh, he said the only other thing that he knew was the title, Rough House. So he had a title. Well, he had a title, really. That's all he had, pretty much. Um, so I said, that sounds great. That's fantastic. Let's, what if Night Swimming commissioned you and gave you some money right up front, to begin work on it. Because it was clear it wouldn't be something he would go away and type. What he needed was time and a space. So we gave him uh, a lot of money and said, what I want you to do is rent a rehearsal hall somewhere and start work cataloging all the things you do physically. How the falls you do, the rolls, the, the slips, all the pratfalls, all that stuff. Videotape it and start to think about um, how they might fit together. Um, and then call us and invite us in when you have something. And so he, you know, he did that. He did the videotape. He, started, he called us, and he said, come in and look at the stuff I have. And then we, um, we uh, ignored almost all of that material, <laughs> actually, because uh, it's all stuff he knew how to do. So we knew he didn't have to work on it. Yeah. Um, it's all in his body. He's been playing like a huge kid for 40 years with all of these things. We started doing uh, improvisational work where I would put on music. He would literally just improvise for a half hour at a time using some of that material and just moving with music. Uh, we invited a choreographer in to give him exercises. Try this. Do this. How about this? What about that? Do this. Dance with me. Don't dance. This sort of thing. And slowly uh, images started to appear. Um, you know, at some point, he, he's in a rehearsal, so he would grab a chair, and he would do stuff with a chair and then get rid of it. Or he, we had a long routine with a, a, a high stool that happened to be in a rehearsal hall, 
And Andy, he's, he, it, there is a very childlike part in what, about him, and part of it's curiosity. You know how a child will, will discover something new about a chair or an object or this table or this glass of water. And Andy's like that. He'll go, oh, wow, look at it in a glass of water. It's water, and he'll play with it. And he'll, all of these things will pop out about this glass of water. So this stool became this scene partner, another character for a while. You won't see a stool in the show because the routine in the end was fantastic, but uh, uh, didn't offer us anything. It was funny in itself and didn't have a larger life. But some of them did. Mm. And uh, some of the scenes you'll see in the show, or in fact most of them, arrive spontaneously just through Andy improvising in a rehearsal hall and me going, that is interesting, and that moment is interesting, and that sequence that you just invented, really interesting. Can you do it again? Sometimes he couldn't. He'd go, I don't know how I did that. I literally couldn't do it again if I tried. Or, Andy, it would be really great if you could do that again, and and he couldn't do it exactly, but something else would reveal itself. Some other thing would develop. so then we had a sort of this little group of uh, uh, movement sequences, essentially. And I invited a lighting designer to join us. And um, one of the lighting designers who's, in fact, running the show today, Rebecca Picherak, who I'd worked with before, and I knew would be interested to hang out with us, basically, mm-hmm. and watch Andy and uh, uh, talk about what possibilities might be, uh, if we were in a theater, what might she, what might she do to light him while he moved? Because dance, as you probably know, if you've seen any, often there isn't anything on, on the stage that, uh, at least in contemporary dance, it's a lot, but there's a lot of lighting. Lighting is really critical to a lot of contemporary dance. Um, and Rebecca had done some dance lighting. So eventually we ended up in a theater for three weeks, and I said, Andy, every morning you're going to improvise to music. I'll select the music, and Rebecca will be on the lighting board and change the lights as you dance, as you move. And every day she will put up new lights, and we won't tell you what they are, and she will add them into the mix, so that you're not only improvising to the music, but you're also improvising to the lighting images that Rebecca is throwing at you as you move in the space. Um, And I I wish I could tell you about one of the sections you're going to see, but I don't want to spoil it for you. But there's one... Uh, that we uh, uh, call the X-ray, which I think you'll figure out once you see the show, that uh, uh, was invented spontaneously by Rebecca setting up two lamps in a very, very particular relationship to each other. And she says she knew exactly what would happen. I'm not so sure, actually. But um, uh, Andy knew nothing about either lamp. So he was just doing these routines and this stuff in, in this theater one day, and Rebecca then did this image. And... Andy played in it. And what you're going to see today in this x-ray scene, Andy invented spontaneously in that moment where, where these two lights just happened to appear, and he was happened to be in exactly the right place in the theater with a chair that the, the series of images lined up in a very... It's hard to describe without describing it, but lined up in a very particular way that you'll see. And this whole scene evolved with him and with shadows. And I'm, I had the joy, like, this was the funnest show to work on. I get to watch this wonderful performer and this wonderful lighting designer bounce ideas off each other, and I get to pick the ones that are best. It's, pretty good, <laughs> it's a pretty good job. And this one, it happened, and we had to stop right after. You go, that has to be in the show. We don't even know what the show is yet. 
Um, we have no idea what the story of the show is, how it begins, how it ends, but you just know that that has to be in the show because it's such a strange, wonderful thing that suddenly appeared. So we collected all those strange, wonderful things uh, and uh, started to go, where should they happen? Where does, where does that strange, wonderful x-ray thing happen? Well, maybe here. And a choreographer friend said, don't think about it so much. Just pick an order for all of these things that you have. You have like 20 things. Pick an order and do it. So we did one day, and you go, wow, actually, there is a, uh, I won't say story, there isn't a story per se in this show, but there is a journey. He starts somewhere, he goes somewhere else, a series of things happen, and he gets to a much different place by the end. And so a lot of my work was going, there's something not there yet here. Something in the journey has to happen. I don't know what it is, or the beginning has to have something else. Uh, that it doesn't, it begins uh, in a way that I don't understand. So every day we would improvise more, and something every, not every day, God knows, but some days something would happen and you go, that, that's good, that is interesting, that should be in the show. What if we started with that? Okay, let's try it. Um, <clears throat> we, we did a, a short run in Toronto about a year and a half ago, and we were performing every night to an audience, and uh, but it wasn't the show you're going to see. It was maybe half the length of the show you're going to see. And every morning, Andy would, we would continue this process. Andy would be on stage. Rebecca would be playing with the lights. Um, and I would, I would be DJ, and I would put on music. And Andy would just move and, and play on stage and, and play with the lighting, and we would see what happened. And the sh- beginning of the show uh, evolved one morning. just kind of happened. Rebecca was, did this and did that and did something with a light bulb and suddenly a, a, a scene evolved. And you go, okay, keep her. Let's keep that. Put it at the beginning. How's it going to end? How's it going to end? How's it going to end? Um, patience, really. It's waiting for the other great idea. And one day, again, completely by accident through this improv, this other thing happened um, that Andy played with. And you watch it and you, I said, that f- that's the ending. And we, we found a way to get from what was the ending to it. So there's massaging, right? How do they fit together? Um, uh, how does the lighting happen that gets us there? And uh, we stitched it together, right? Like, again, like an editor might, right? You go, this part should be here, that part should be here, and the ending is now there. And, and we, you know, breathe a sigh of relief, of course, and the show, we, I say this show sort of accidentally premiered in Toronto, that we, uh, we didn't expect to finish it, in that workshop or that perf- with those audiences. But these things have popped up every day, and we kept adding them to the show at the beginning and the end, so it got longer this way, either way. And we suddenly realized we had the show, and it was kind of done. It's interesting and, you know, <clears throat> to hear that process and that you know, to see the show, and it's so full of a wide variety of meaning. The show has been played both for kids and for adults, and there's a version of the show that's done that's designed for children, and then uh, a full-length version that you'll see today that's for adults. And it's incredible to watch the degrees of meaning that can be culled from it. Mm-hmm. We've been very careful, or rather, I've been very, Andy's joke is that he doesn't know what the play is about or what the show's about at all. Um, and it's probably true. Like, he lives it, right? He, yeah. He's on stage, and he lives it, and he's telling it. But So he doesn't, like a dancer, he doesn't worry very much about what it means. That's, that's, it's not unimportant to him, but it's not the most important thing to him. Um, uh, I'm, uh, usually I'm all about what does it mean out here in the audience as I, as I assemble shows like this. 
Um, but on this one, actually, even I strove not to worry as we created it about what it meant. Because um, sometimes that can really kill something dead. Like, it just shoots it in the heart. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? Um, so I tried really hard to not worry and not think very much about what it meant. And let the meaning sort of emerge. Exactly. In a yeah. belief that the images were strong, the performance was, is beautiful, and that, that something does something really powerful does happen on stage and that there are meanings in it. And as we performed it to audiences and slowly let it build, you realize that people would, at the end of it, would argue about sections. And uh, I was telling this story the other night about someone going, I love the section where he's the paraplegic. And so the person sitting next to her goes, he was never a paraplegic. What are you talking about? I, don't, I didn't see that at all anywhere in the show. And they'd, she'd go, it was here when he does this and this and this. And they'd go, yeah, I guess so. But he wasn't a paraplegic. And um, that, I thought that was fantastic, that they, they both had an interpretation for that section that made total sense to them, but it was very different. You go, that feels like a, a great success. It's a terrific piece where like, uh, there's so many different ways to look at it and seeing the kids react to it, where this world where everything's animated, they're just, you know, it's basically a, a guy, a light bulb, a bowl, and a chair. And yet there's tons of different scenarios and imaginative things that that was so real for the kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the great things about the kids' show, of course, is that whenever there, it, it often goes to darkness, very briefly. And the kids would yell, right? So it goes dark, the kids, yeah! Uh, the adult audiences don't do that so much. Um, so I expect all of you, when you see the show today, when it goes to dark, to yell really, really loud. I think it'll make it a, make it a lot funner for you, and Andy would get a real charge out of it. But... Um, uh, kids do have a really different reaction to not different really like they don't they don't look for meaning either uh, in the same way that adults do which is part of what makes it charming doing it for audiences yeah. that they just open their arms and experience yeah. it and and parts of it they 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 don't they don't worry about what it means it's sort of so so fabulous about doing the show to an audience that has some children and some adults is actually the best environment because you get people laughing at different moments right the things the adults go I'm too adult to laugh at that moment. Yeah. And the kids go, ah! And uh, there are references, there are sly references to various things that, that, that kids don't get because they, they don't get the references. And adults laugh their heads off. So you get this kind of roller coaster when you have a mixed audience. And, and that might be true a bit more today in a matinee. Mm-hmm. Um, with adult audiences only, there are moments where you can feel people resist laughing sometimes because they, they go, yeah. um, uh, I'm smarter than laughing at a pratfall. You know, and you go, well... Good luck to you then. But, uh, uh, but that we try to win them over over the course of the show and, uh, and get them eventually without, without trying to overdo the pratfalling. <laughs> I, I know some people are eager to ask questions for Brian. Sure. Um, so we'll open it to you for a couple of questions. But yeah. I wonder if you could tell us within the history of theater where non-verbal physical theater fits in. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Different, the question was, is where does non-verbal theater fit into the sort of history of theater, and what are the differences between uh, a theater piece without words and dance? Right. Uh, uh, as to the first one... <laughs> easy uh, question. Yeah, there, easy but. question, right? Uh, we won't have time to see the show if I really kind of <laughs> went through it. Um, I don't know the full answer to the first one uh, uh, offhand. You, you're testing my theater history uh, and, and my math, my graduate Did you say professors like the Commedia dell'arte or something? But like yeah, that? that's where I would leap to, would be Commedia, the uh, um, Italian tradition of uh, physical comedy 
that um, has had several centuries to evolve now and is quite a brilliant and very, very, very sophisticated form of physical comedy. Although not entirely comedy, but, but largely physical comedy based on, on routines, some of which have come down through history and some of which, of course, are improvisational, uh, that are often integrated into text-based shows of that period. Um, uh, certainly there is a, in the 20th century, there is a history of dance theater where, um, which might have some text, um, but where the primary mode of expression is, is a physical one. Uh, like the Whirlpool, which I did, uh, had lots of text but was fully choreographed, and it felt like it was part of a, uh, a tradition of, of trying to fuse those two, and it can be a very un, un, um, uncomfortable uh, fusion, both on stage, to how much of one do you need and how much of the other do you need, and audiences are sometimes uncomfortable with it too, because uh, you either come expecting a play with words, right, talk, 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 or you come expecting a dance and you go, why are they talking so much? Um, uh, I like the fusion personally, but uh, I think the 20th century has partly been a, uh, an uncomfortable one about uh, artists trying to find an integration between those two things, uh, if both from the dance world and the, uh, the theater world, and audiences struggling between those two um, <clears throat> uh, with their own expectations, actually. So that didn't really answer your history question entirely. But, uh, and the second question, oh, what's the difference? Did, that, did I answer both, actually? Was I cunning enough to answer both in one comment? <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thank you for letting me off the hook. Oh, interesting. Um, How do you document a piece like this? It, uh, yeah, great question. We, uh, did a couple, we tried a couple things. Uh, we certainly videotaped parts of it as we created it, uh, which worked really well, except until we discovered that Andy, Andy hated watching himself on TV, which is essentially what videotaping, you, go, you replay it. And dancers are very skilled at this um, uh, because it's an important tool in the dance world where, they, where they'll choreograph something and videotape it, and then the dancers will, will either relearn it or will study themselves, and they become very, uh, they're very good watching themselves mm -hmm. on TV. Uh, Andy hates doing that, and I understand. Um, so we ended up having all this video footage that he wouldn't watch. <laughs> um, so that wasn't very useful. Uh, then Andy started, uh, he's a really good cartoonist as well, and uh, he draws beautifully. And so he started drawing th the sequences that he invented. And he invented this very curious sort of st uh, slightly stick figure notation on these huge sheets of paper that we brought into rehearsal. So he would improv improvise something, and I'd go, Andy, are you going to remember what that is and how to do it? Because we're not videotaping now. And he'd go, uh, just a sec. And he would draw it. And he would draw this sort of cartoon of what he did. And I would look at it, and I, wouldn't be, I couldn't have done the movement based on the cartoon. But to Andy, it made total sense what it was. So uh, through rehearsal, we ended up with these dozens of sheets of cartoons of the various sequences, some of which we used and some of which we didn't. And part of the, what we wish we might do someday, and you allude to it in the program, is do something with those drawings. Uh, uh, we talked about doing a, a book for the show someday, and it would have photographs and drawings and, and then descriptions. And then eventually, long after we created the show, the stage manager um, started writing out the actions. And uh, uh, Andy does this, then he does this, then he does that, then he does this, then he hits, his head hits the floor with a resounding crash, you know, stuff like that. Um, and we now have a script like that, uh, which is useful sometimes. You go, Did Andy, and does Andy turn left or right at this moment? We can't remember, and the cartoon doesn't tell us. So we do have a sort of a, a paper script now, 
I never actually have looked at it. I don't find it useful, but it's it's good for um, for technical purposes and so on. And we do have a videotape of the show. So and are the lights actually called by a stage manager of a book, or is it the lighting operator? <laughs> Again, it's an unusual show in that uh, because the lighting designer was in rehearsal the entire time. Usually, a lighting designer creates a design for a show, and the stage manager sits in the booth with the the technicians and has a script. And at certain moments, says uh, uh, the, this lighting cue, "Go now," and it happens. And the the, the technician actually does the mani- manipulation of the lights. In this case, because the lighting designer was so integrated into the show, um, the lighting designer runs the lights. And the stage manager actually, poor Judy, actually doesn't have very much to do when we're actually running the show. She takes care of the whole show. But actually during the running of the show, she runs the sound cues. But the lighting designer is actually in the balcony at the back of the theater, in the room with all of us. And... Um, like a performer. As is a performer okay. in the show. Company it's, a, it's actually a duet. It yeah. looks like a solo show, but we actually call it a duet. It's a duet between Andy and the lighting designer. And that all of the lighting is, is run live, as it were. That uh, it's all based on, on, I shouldn't say, it's all about the timing between the two of them. Uh, when Andy does this, this has to happen. Or, or often the lighting does something and Andy has to respond. And that's all live and in the moment, that it's not pre-programmed lighting. Um, and as you'll see, there's another thing that the lighting designer does with a, a light bulb in the show, and she uh, operates that entirely as well. And as, you, as you'll see, that's another character in the show is this light bulb, all run uh, live. Wow. Well, it's a, it's a really, really great accomplishment, and uh, I am so proud to be able to present it to you here in our season this year. Can okay, maybe take one more question? No. Okay. Piggybacking on that one, in doing a show like that, is it your hope that someone across the globe might pick up that show and do it? And if so, what kind of would it be the video of it that they'd be mm. working with? And okay. the other question is, how does your company support itself to do these? <laughs> Two big. There's very different. One question is about how does uh, this show potentially go on to have an international life? How is it represented? If there's no script, I guess you're asking. And how does Night Swimming support itself? So, <laughs> well, they're actually we'll relate- quick so they can see the show. Too. They're actually related questions in the end. Uh, one, uh, uh, yes, we do have uh, dreams for the show that because it doesn't have words, it could travel uh, well to other countries. The language is no barrier for it. And, and there are other countries that, are, that have a longer traditions and deeper traditions of this sort of theater. Uh, so we're certainly optimistic about that. And yes, a video or a DVD now is the technology of, of offering it to people so they can see the show on, on computer or on TV. Uh, in terms of how we survive night swimming, uh, we don't have any box office, as it were, because we don't produce most of our shows. But through foundations, through uh, 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 government arts uh, councils, are very generous to our work. Um, and uh, through donors and patrons and uh, individuals who contribute quite substantially to our work because they've seen it over the years. We've done a dozen or 15 shows and that have been performed in various places around Canada. And people who like our work and, and I'm, I'm pleased to say seem to, to believe that we contribute something unique in the Canadian theatre spectrum and have been very, very generous to us over the years. And, and I hope that this show, supported by those people, and the, that it's touring, like even coming here is an enormous, um, wonderful thing for our small... Co- our company is tiny compared to even most other theatre companies. 
but we're able to create a lot of work because we, we work very efficiently and because we only focus on the creation. Coming here to do a show at the NAC is a, a wonderful credential and a wonderful opportunity for us to uh, for the, evolve the show, but also it's a, um, a credential that I hope will encourage other people uh, elsewhere in Canada and beyond to, to pick up the show and, and give it a longer life, which helps us support the company. Well, we hope so too here at the NAC. And uh, thank you all for coming out and uh, enjoy the show this afternoon. Yes, indeed. Thank okay. you all. That's all for this interview's podcast. I hope you'll join us again next month when Peter will be talking with Gloria Montero, playwright of Frida Kay and giving her perhaps a particular insight into the play, mother of performer Allegra Fulton, for whom she wrote the play. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to hinterviews at gmail.com. That's H-I-N-T-E-R-V-I-E-W-S at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Search on Hinterviews. Until next month, this is Laura Denker for Peter Hinton and Company saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa.